When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Trump tweeted in the last week or so that he had actually won the popular vote if you deduct the millions who voted illegally. Do you believe that? I don't know. I, I'm not really focused on these things. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You, you have an opinion on whether millions of Americans I, voted illegally? I have illegally? no way of backing that up. I have no knowledge of such things. You don't believe but that? I don't, it doesn't matter to me. He won the election. Why isn't it enough for him that he won the Electoral College? Why does he have to make up information that he also won the popular vote, which he lost? There's no such thing, unfortunately, more a fact. There are no objective facts? I mean, that is, that is an absolutely outrageous assertion. Of course there are facts. Is that really presidential behavior? Well, he's the president-elect, so that's, that's presidential behavior, yes. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast the show about the man who finds Saturday Night Live totally unwatchable every week when he watches it, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So Trump has picked his Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. It's Ben Carson who opposes public housing and other programs that he says encourage dependency and are examples of social engineering. This isn't so much a fox guarding the hen house as it is a bunny rabbit running a bureaucracy. It's a fish with a bicycle. Carson is a pediatric neurosurgeon with a self-help message. He doesn't know the first thing about housing policy or how to manage a $47 billion public sector enterprise. What happens when you put somebody who doesn't support HUD or understand HUD in charge of HUD? Well, we have a pretty good guess because it happened once before. In 1981, Ronald Reagan, who didn't believe in public housing, appointed a lawyer named Sam Pierce to run HUD. Silent Sam Pierce was the only African-American member of Reagan's cabinet. Sound familiar? Pierce was the only cabinet member to stay the full eight years. And why would he leave? He got to travel all over the world on fancy government junkets. In Washington, he was famous for sitting in his office and watching soap operas all day. Meanwhile, Pierce's aides stole everything that wasn't nailed down. They steered grants to politically connected real estate developers. They gave grants to each other. When the scandal broke in Reagan's second term, 17 HUD officials were convicted of bribery, defrauding the government, lying to Congress, and so on. When Pierce's successor, Jack Kemp, came in as HUD secretary in the first Bush administration, he did a big review and found fraud, theft, and mismanagement in 94% of HUD's budget, essentially everything. The looting mounted into the billions of dollars, and Pierce was never indicted, the independent prosecutor actually believed that he had no idea what was going on in his own building. He did, however, know every plot twist on the young and the restless. So when you ask about the risk of Ben Carson running HUD, I'm less focused on his dismantling progressive policies or reversing desegregation policies, though he'll surely try to do those things. I'm more concerned about the Trump kleptocracy plundering HUD like pirates boarding a Spanish galleon. For Trump's developer friends and savvy Washington lobbyists, the combination of huge federal spending and negligent management 
presents an irresistible target of opportunity. But on today's show, we're not going to talk about housing policy. We're going to talk about jobs policy. In particular, Trump's deal with Carrier to keep them from moving a manufacturing plant to Mexico. I'll be back to speak to Josh Barrow of Business Insider, who wrote a great piece about the deal right after we do the tweets. Just tried to watch Saturday Night Live. Unwatchable. Totally biased. Not funny. And the Baldwin impersonation just can't get any worse. Sad. The president of Taiwan called me today to wish me congratulations on winning the presidency. Thank you. Interesting how the U.S. sells Taiwan billions of dollars of military equipment, but I should not accept a congratulatory phone call. Rex Nard of Indiana is moving to Mexico and rather viciously firing all of its 300 workers. This is happening all over our country. No more. The Green Party just dropped its recount suit in Pennsylvania and is losing votes in Wisconsin recount. Just a Stein scam to raise money. If the press would cover me accurately and honorably, I would have far less reason to tweet. Sadly, I don't know if that will ever happen. My guest today is Josh Barrow. He's a senior editor at Business Insider, and he wrote a terrific piece at the end of last week about the carrier deal and Donald Trump and the politics of jobs. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jacob. So I guess, you know, one question is how what Trump is doing departs from what has been Republican policy. I mean, how is it unprecedented or groundbreaking to go to a company and say, don't move these jobs offshore. Yeah, well, so I think, you know, the the big shift in the the way that Donald Trump talks about companies and liberating them to invest and grow and and create jobs, which is a a very standard Republican talking point, is that he combines it with this sense of corporate responsibility, where he really talks about the point of business growth and economic growth being creating jobs for people that pay sustainable and rising wages. And so he talks about, you know, we're going to do a big corporate income tax cut and we want to allow these people to invest in the United States and, and grow, but then they better create jobs here and they better not move those jobs overseas. And if they do, there are going to be big consequences. So I think that's, you know, it's a big policy departure from Republicans. You're already starting to see nervousness from Republicans on Capitol Hill about this idea that Donald Trump wants to enact new tariffs on imports the United States, uh, which they don't favor. But it's also a big rhetorical shift. You know, four years ago, when you had all the talk about makers and takers, and we built that and sort of this, you know, the hagiography of the entrepreneur at the 2012 Republican convention, Rick Santorum, actually, of all people, talked about how that fell flat, because most people don't own their own business, don't want to own their own business. They want to be able to work for a living and be paid well for doing it. So that's been really central to Donald Trump's messaging all the way through the campaign. And it's really central to the messaging at Carrier. And he's off 
offering up this sort of novel um, policy package that I, I'm not sure it's actually going to be effective in driving a lot of job creation in the U.S., especially in the manufacturing sector. But it's, it's definitely putting emphasis on a different question than Republicans or Democrats usually do. So one objection to this has been, look, you know, there's nothing wrong with keeping a thousand jobs from going to Mexico, but this isn't policy. This is governing. This is a Julia Turner has a piece in Slate today saying this is governing by the kind of stunt he used to do when he hosted The Apprentice. You know, it's an anecdote writ large. It's not a policy. Well, I mean, it it is a policy in that there was a tax incentive package paid for by the, the state of Indiana, um, a fairly small one, actually, $7 million. It works out to $875 per job retained in the U.S. per year over a 10-year window that the tax benefits are paid out. So, I mean, and, the, and, this and is, that sounds cheap. I got to say, that sounds cheap. I mean, governments pay, state governments, local governments pay a lot more than that to retain jobs. Right. And, and, and so that's the other reason this is policy. This is something that states and localities have been doing for a long time. And there's been a lot of criticism among economists and other academics saying that there isn't evidence that in the long run, when um, local governments and state governments pay out these incentive packages to employers for their location decisions, it's not clear that it creates jobs on net. But it's definitely something that Republicans and Democrats um, at the state and local level have been doing for a long time. But I think the other thing is, why was the deal so cheap? It was cheap because it's not just the tax incentives, the carriers, parent companies, United Technologies, they also own some defense contracting companies, a, hu- a large fraction of their business is contracts with the federal government. And if Donald Trump is signaling that there's going to be both a formal and an informal policy shift where companies will be treated badly if they move jobs overseas, that's an incentive not to do it. So I, I think the question is, you know, uh, no, the president is not going to be able to spend all of his time granularly saving job at individual factory after individual factory, although I think he will do some number of additional uh, showpieces like this. But the question is, can he create a broader norm where companies are afraid to offshore jobs, either because they think it will bring down the wrath of the Trump administration or because they think there will be a new tariff imposed that will just make it very costly for them to import back into the U.S.? Or maybe it will create new consumer focus um, on the issue of offshoring and and companies um, will be afraid of backlash from the public if they move jobs overseas. So I think, you know, there, there is some question of can he more broadly change the calculus for corporations where they don't find it worthwhile to move um, production to an overseas location when they would have found that worthwhile today. Because naming and shaming is a policy. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a policy. It's not necessarily a formal policy, but it's, again, it's, you know, it's not with Trump. I, I feel like it's important to take a step back when he does something that seems really weird and ask yourself, how weird is it really? The Obama administration put a lot of public pressure on Pfizer, which was going to go through with a um, uh, tax inversion tra- transaction. That's one of these things where you merge with a foreign company and then say, I'm a foreign company now. I'm not responsible for U.S. taxes on all my income. Um, Pfizer might have been able to do that legally, um, but in part because because of the uh, the pressure that was put on them by the Obama administration, they ended up abandoning that effort. So I don't view this as terribly different um, from what Barack Obama did with Pfizer, um, and from what y- you often see with politicians when you know a large company is going to do something that 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 they don't think is in line with their policy objectives. One thing you can do is just tell the company they shouldn't do it and hope that that matters. I mean, politically, my reaction, immediate reaction was, shit, that's really smart. And you could tell a lot of people had that reaction because of the immediate arguments they made against it. They, they said, well, this is a terrible idea and you can't scale it. 
I mean, would it be would it be a good idea if you could scale it? You know, maybe you can scale it. And the next company in his site seems to be even smaller. It's this Rexnord and three hundred yes. workers. But you know, there are, there are some bigger targets too, and no reason you couldn't do uh, one a week for a lot of weeks. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think this is smart politics, smart optics for Trump now. But I think, you know, when you look at this a year from now, two years from now, whether he is well perceived on the issue of jobs in the economy is going to be driven by macro fundamentals, what, um, what unemployment is, how fast wages are rising. Because again, you know, set pieces of presidents showing what they're doing to create jobs is also not new. You saw Barack Obama going to the Pella window factory in Iowa a few years ago, praising that company um, for basically job sharing moves that they did. So they avoided laying off workers, even though construction declined in the recession. You saw him go to the Siemens factory in North Carolina and talk about the partnerships they have with community colleges to train workers for advanced manufacturing. So you always have presidents going out into factories, sort of showing off the relationship between the policies that they're making and real job creation. That said, that stuff only really impresses people if they perceive their own economic situation and the economic situation in their local community as improving. So if a year from now, unemployment continues to decline and, and wage growth is strong, then I think Trump will be popular and this sort of stuff will be politically effective for him. But I think if the macro picture for jobs looks bad, um, then I don't think it's going to impress people that he shows up at a factory and, and yells at some people. I mean, you focus on the issue. This is It's not just about jobs. You know, everybody cares about jobs. It's about wages and the idea that people who are trying to support their families on the income paid by a job that doesn't require a college education are in a really tough spot right now. And part of what he's trying to do with a range of policies, mm-hmm. including the immigration policies, including the trade policies, as he's talked about them, is put pressure on wages. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think one thing that he is correctly intuited is that, you know, what makes people happy? What do they want out of the economy? You know, the the obvious answer for economic policy experts is to say people want a rising standard of living. They want to be able to have more dollars worth of consumption than they had last year. And I think he's right that it's slightly different. What people want is to feel that they can get ahead and support their family by earning wages from a job. And so that means, you know, they they don't necessarily want what Republicans focused on so much in past elections, the ability to go out and start their own company and build their own business. They don't necessarily want what Democrats have been offering, which is a, you know, a a suite of expanded government programs, um, you know, subsidies for health insurance through Obamacare and things of that nature that may increase their after-tax income, but don't uh, give them the sense that they're able to get ahead through their own labor. And so he's talking about that he's going to implement policies that allow people to get ahead through their own labor. Um, Now, obviously, uh, part of the reason that other people hadn't pursued this, this path, the, this space in, in ideology that Trump has walked into, is it's not clear this stuff is going to work. I don't think it's obvious that, you know, tighter trade restrictions, um, tighter restrictions on immigration are going to push wages up a lot. Now, I, I think... I think they might. I'm trying to retain an open mind about it because I think a lot of the economic research on trade has gotten proven wrong over the last few years. I think a lot of the research on immigration is is based on fairly thin data. I don't think we really know um, if you had a much tighter immigration policy, how that would affect wages and and incomes because there's sort of two different effects. If you restrict immigration a lot, then there are fewer people who are eligible for the set of jobs that becomes available in the United States. That should theoretically give workers more of an ability to bid up wages. 
On the other hand, you, you take away consumers in the economy. So maybe there's less demand uh, from companies to hire. Similarly with trade, you know, if you restrict imports, then you might create more jobs for people working in the U.S. producing things. But on the other hand, it becomes hard for them to export stuff. And as you make, um, as you make goods more expensive, because you have to pay U.S. workers to make them, that can be inflationary. It can just mean that people aren't, aren't able to buy as much with the paycheck they have. Even if the paycheck went up in nominal terms, it could all get eaten up by inflation. So I think um, the actual economic effects of this are, are, are going to be very uncertain. But I think the, the results of over the last 20 years have been unsatisfactory to a lot of people in the middle class. So I think there was a big appetite to try something new. Yeah, I mean, I really commend your your effort to be fair to Trump here. I think this is exactly the way in which journalists should be fair to Trump, which is to not assume that the policy is a bad policy because Trump proposed it. Mm-hmm. That that said, I think you're you're creating more coherence in the policy that may exist. But be that <laughs> be that as it may, do you think this policy makes sense? I mean. If you were in charge of policy, would you be doing anything like this? I mean, what are the odds that this works on the terms that you lay out? That is, it contributes to rising wages for workers in factories and other low-skilled jobs. Uh, More likely than not, I think it won't work. But I think I think this is the big sort of pol- economic policy conundrum of our time that um, both the the share of GDP that goes to workers has been declining, and productivity has been rising more slowly than it did in the past. And both of those things add up to slow wage growth and a perception of economic stagnation by individuals, even if the overall headline economic growth number looks good. So much of the benefits of that growth are going to people who own capital and people who are the small number of people who are able to come up with the big new business ideas that make a lot of money. Um, so I think there, there is something that's not working that establishment thinkers on both sides of the aisle don't really have good answers to. So I think it's tr- time to try new things, even if we think it's likely that those new things won't work. I actually think this is a relatively coherent area of um, Donald Trump's thinking. When you look back at what he's said about politics over the last three or four decades, he's been o- all over the map on a lot of issues, but on trade, he's been pretty consistent that he thinks that, uh, that free trade hurts the American worker and allows other countries to outcompete us. So I think, you know, whether or not he's right about that, it's one of the the few things he's actually been fairly consistent on. My gut feeling is that an immigration policy that both allows a lot of low-skill workers into the United States and implicitly allows a lot of illegal work, which both expands the by an even wider margin the pool of low-skill workers available and allows them to work for less than the minimum wage without prote- labor protections that citizens and legal workers expect. All that stuff, it seems to me, it seems intuitive to me that that stuff would be undercutting wages. And that if you had um, more effective enforcement of labor laws as they exist today, if you made it more difficult for people to work in the country illegally, and if you had a change in immigration policy that favored high-skill workers more over low-skill workers, my gut feeling is that that ought to push up wages, at the, especially at the bottom to the middle of the, of the income spectrum. But isn't it true, Josh, that even if you restricted immigration and even if you, you did create, create, uh, erected trade barriers, the big thing driving the loss of jobs is automation. I mean, it's mm-hmm. robotics. I mean, a, a new factory has a hundred people working, where an old factory would have had a thousand people working. Machines are doing it. Yeah, no, that's right. And and manufacturing employment is never going to be the employment base um, that it that it was in the past. And I think Trump has has been misleading on that. That said, however, there is another sector that creates a lot of jobs for that pay 
moderate wages for um, middle skill workers, especially men, and that's construction. And construction has not had nearly the same automation benefits that manufacturing has had. And there's a lot, while there isn't that much that the government can do to create new manufacturing jobs, there's a lot it can do to create construction jobs. Um, Trump has talked about wanting an infrastructure package. I think it's unclear exactly how big that will be, how it will be structured, whether it will work well, what sort of jobs it will create. But I think, you know, if there was a burst of spending in that area, it would tend to create construction jobs. And there's a lot the government can do on housing policy. Trump has talked about wanting to, and, and his economic advisors have talked about wanting to deregulate banks in certain ways that would encourage more lending. They've talked about a spinoff of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I think those things, it's, it's likely that they would encourage more mortgage lending. Now, I'm not sure that that would be a good thing long run for the economy. I think that would create risks of, of new asset bubbles in real estate. Um, but I think it, it is something that in the medium term could create more construction jobs by increasing the number of housing starts. Um, and I think that if, you know, w- one of the reasons Trump got elected was you have a lot of these men who don't have college degrees, who feel like their uh, work prospects have stagnated, wages that are, are decent are not available to them. A, bo- a big boost in construction employment could actually do something significant for that group of people. Trump's biggest uh, priority on the tax confront is a huge corporate tax cut. Is there anything he can do, you think he might do, to try to ensure that more of that money that companies are going to retain and not pay in taxes go to workers? That is, that the labor share of corporate profits goes, more of it goes to workers and not just to the owners and shareholders? Well, so I'd I'd say a couple of things about that. One is that there will probably be two big components of a Trump uh, corporate tax cut. One will be a reduction in the tax rate going forward. The other will be what's called a repatriation holiday, which is basically the U.S., has this law that U.S. corporations don't just pay tax on their income from the U.S. They pay tax on their worldwide income, less whatever they paid to other countries. And so because our tax rate is higher than the tax rate in most other advanced countries, it creates this incentive for U.S. companies that earn profits abroad to leave the profits in those foreign countries as long as possible because they pay the U.S. tax only when they bring it back. So when you uh, have a holiday on that, basically let them bring it back while paying much less of the tax. The research seems pretty clear that the benefit of that mostly goes goes to shareholders. The companies bring the money back, they pay it out as dividends or share repurchases. It doesn't seem to do much to encourage new business investments. So I think that will end up being totally a sop to owners of capital. The other part where you cut the rate going forward, uh, economists have some amount of disagreement about how this actually works, but they're there's generally a sense that that does, in fact, encourage new business investment and that a portion of the tax cut on corporations actually accrues to workers as higher wages. Um, now, it's probably not a majority. Maybe it's 20 percent. Maybe it's 30 percent. But I do think workers would feel some significant percentage of that corporate tax cut. It is a better way to grow the economy through tax cuts than, say, cutting individual income taxes for rich people, although, of course, Trump is also proposing to cut individual income taxes for rich people. So I think that'll be a mixed bag. Um, in terms of what you can do to ensure that more of the benefits go to workers, I mean, one thing is this sort of informal pressure that we saw with Carrier. If there was this sense, this sense of expectation created around corporations that they don't exist just to produce profits for shareholders, but that they serve a variety of stakeholders, including workers, um, then that could create pressure for companies to take money that they have available for profits and do things that are not the most profitable, choose to locate in the United States, even when the cost structure is higher than it is abroad. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know how consistently Trump will apply that pressure, but I think it's one of the things that, uh, that business leaders are afraid of with, the, with things like the carrier event, that will focus more attention on these offshoring decisions and will, and will sort of put companies in a position where they have 
have to think more um, about the effects on, on workers and their wages rather than just on shareholders. Yeah. I mean, Democrats have traditionally had a set of alternative policies here geared towards raising industrial wages, wages of working class people, you know, unions, mm-hmm. a higher minimum wage, which is there's evidence now that higher minimum wages uh, in at state levels have had a significant impact on, on wages overall. Uh, and, you know, a series of social programs, both to shield workers from the market, uh, help with economic transition and make work pay. Why, yeah. why do you think that that's not a good set of answers? Why is Trump's set more appealing? Well, so I, I, don't, I don't think that's actually the set of answers that the Democrats have been offering up. I don't see them talking a lot about strategies to increase unionization and to increase worker power in, in wage negotiations through unionization. Where you do see growth in, in unionization, it's generally in the, in the public sector and then in low-paid service jobs, which I think is, you know, especially with as regards low-paid service jobs, I think that's all to the good, but I don't think it addresses this political question Trump addressed, which is really about middle-income people, people, you know, with in Incomes of forty thousand dollars or sixty thousand um, dollars. Similarly, with the minimum wage, um, it's it's clear that minimum wages increase uh, pay for for people with low incomes. They seem to do a little bit to push wages up above the minimum wage level. If you set the minimum wage at $10, you can't pay all your workers in your fast food restaurant $10. You have to pay the shift leads $11. So you get a, you get a bit of that bump. But you know when you're talking about people making $20, $30, $35 an hour, I, I don't think those people get significant um, improvements in their standard of living for minimum wage increases. In fact, they probably have a, a modest reduction in standard of living because those minimum wage increases in significant part get passed back through its higher prices. And then when you talk about that suite of programs, yeah, you know, Obamacare makes it better if you lose your job and it makes it easier for you to to hang on to insurance. But what do those people see from that democratic package of policies as affecting them when they are employed, when they have this moderate economic situation? They're not poor. They don't need or want the government handout. They want to see their wages go up. I think what Democrats have talked about for the last eight years has actually had very little to offer that group of people. So it's not surprising to me that they look at that and say, you know, some of this stuff is all well and good. Minimum wage increases are popular. When you put them on ballots, they tend to pass with like two-thirds of the vote. But I think a lot of those families look at that and say, I'm for a minimum wage increase, but it's not relevant to my personal economic situation. What uh, What would you add at policy? I mean, forget Democrat or Republican. What do you think, as someone who looks at all this economic research is most effective when it comes to boosting industrial wages? Well, I mean, I think I, 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 mean, I, I wouldn't focus just on industrial wages. I would look at middle-skill, middle-income jobs together, and I, you know, more of those are now in the service industries than they are in, in industry. But I would say, you know, I think the most important thing here is full employment. Um, and we've had, we are now approaching, maybe we're at full employment, I think we're close, um, but we went through this extremely long recovery period where we spent seven years approximately with a, a, a very slack labor market, more people looking for jobs than there were jobs available for them to fill. And so that meant that wages didn't go up because companies didn't need to pay more to attract people. So if you have monetary and fiscal policies that aim at maintaining full employment and you have faster recoveries and a larger fraction of the time, uh, the economy is in a tight condition where employers have to pay more to employ people, then you'll see people's wages go up. You know, on on fiscal policy, I think the window passed a little bit. I think it would have been nice to have a larger fiscal stimulus in 2009, 10, 11. I don't think it would do a lot for the economy now 
now because there aren't nearly as many idle resources, idle people available to employ if you if you did a fiscal stimulus. That said, I think an infrastructure package is a good idea so long as the infrastructure itself is useful. Ultimately, the point of infrastructure is not to be a jobs program. The point of infrastructure is to build useful things that make people more productive and, and happier. But your policies are all macro policies. I mean, you credit the possibility of this, this kind of micro-intervention having an impact, but really it's not what you would do. Well, I mean, I think I, the micro-intervention has a micro-impact. I think there are 800 people in Indiana who are employed in Indiana who otherwise wouldn't be. And I mean, obviously, it's not a net of 800 because most of those people would have gotten jobs somewhere else. But it's still, you know, the, the, there was a, a real improvement for some number of people there. I think the the broader question is, can... Trump do one of two things. Can he use a combination of carrots and sticks to make it make more sense for companies to locate here? The, the sticks are, you know, both the, his bully pulpit and shaming, and then also, you know, uh, tariff policies um, that uh, would, would make it unfavorable to, to locate abroad. Um, and then the carrots, you know, lower corporate income taxes will do something to make it more attractive to locate here uh, than to locate in another country. Um, can that change the picture significantly to, uh, so that the U.S. economy creates more jobs with higher wages? My, my guess is that the, those effects will not be terribly large at the margin. Um, I'm more open to the idea that the sign on them will be correct. I think a lot of people think that he's actually going to make the economy worse um, with this program. But I, I think the more promising thing is that Trump might usher in um, uh, an era when both Republicans and Democrats talk about companies as having social obligations beyond just the creation of profits. If Republicans and Democrats come to agree that the, the point of economic growth is to serve a variety of stakeholders and that the point of thriving corporations is not just to pay shareholders but to pay high wages and, and things of that nature, I think in the long run that could lead to better policies. I also think that in a weird way, Trump is likely to be good for the labor movement in the long run. Now, I think in the short run, he's going to implement policies like right to work that will weaken the power of unions. Um, but Trump has been encouraging ordinary middle-income Americans to think of their role in the economy principally as workers and to think about whether the economy is working for workers. It's a big it's a big departure from George W. Bush 16 years ago, who was talking about the ownership society and that what we should do about the fact that the economy had become so good for capital was that everyone should be an owner of capital and we should interact with companies as shareholders in them and, and not focus so much on, on how they treat workers. So if Trump really, you know, if he creates that sensibility among ordinary Republican voters that they should be thinking about the company they work for in terms of how well it does delivering for them as an employee, and if Trump's policies do not, in fact, generate, don't make the labor market great again, don't generate the sort of wage increases that he's promising, then I think people will start casting about for what will create those wage increases. I think it might, among other things, encourage more unionization and, and more consciousness among workers about their, their role as providers of labor in society. I've been speaking to Josh Barrow of Business Insider. His recent piece is entitled, The Carrier Deal Shows What Trump Understands About the Politics of Jobs. Josh, thanks for joining me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Saturday Night Live is a horrible, horrible show. Unwatchable, that funny. 
totally biased. The only time that show was any good in the last 40 years, November 5th, 2015. Absolutely stunning ratings. Very funny. I was fantastic, I have to tell you. Other than that, the show has been absolutely abysmal for decades. They should have me back on every single week. But get rid of Alec Baldwin first. I don't like that guy.